We're glad to see you today in God's house. Hope you brought along your Bible. If you did, take it and turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you did not bring a Bible, then grab one out of the pew rack and find Philippians, the second chapter. I want you to be able to follow along today. Philippians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about a name and I want you to think about what you know about this person. Don't answer aloud, but what do you know about Arland D. Williams Jr.? Arland D. Williams Jr. All right, anything coming to mind? Don't answer aloud, just kind of. Well, if you travel up. I-395 through Washington, D.C. and cross over the Potomac, you will likely cross the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge. Maybe you've been that way, but the question is, who was Arlen D. Williams Jr.? Well, on January the 13th, 1982, he gave hope to five individuals. At the cost of his own life. If you remember back that far on that cold January day, Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac. You see, ice on the wings prevented the plane from a successful takeoff, and almost all of the passengers on board perished that day. But five different times, a helicopter on a rescue mission dropped a rope to save William's life. And five times, Arlen D. Williams Jr. passed the rope to other passengers who were in worse shape than he was. When the rope was extended to Williams the sixth time, he could not take a hold of it any longer, and he succumbed to the frigid waters. And the article I was reading said his, uh, his uh, heroism here was not rash, aware that his own strength was fa- fading, He deliberately handed hope to someone else over the space of several minutes. Now, our world is filled with many women uh, that do heroic deeds, and yet they're not well known. And sadly, they're easily forgotten as time passes by. Their name may be emblazoned upon a memorial bridge or a memorial park, but we forget the story behind that name being there. You know, church history is the same way. Church, church history is filled with men and women who have done heroic deeds. In fact, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 says it this way. And what shall I say more? Uh, for the time would fail for me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, David also and Samuel of the prophets. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valued in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. 
And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. You know, the world may forget. The church may even forget, but God never does. He remembers. He knows each person who sacrificed. He knows each person who's lived a life of sacrifice, especially those who lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we live in a day, sadly, when very few people are willing to sacrifice anything. I mean, truly sacrifice. Dr. Al Mohler shared a startling statistic this past week. He said during the Great Depression, evangelical churches gave six percent to international missions. Six percent they gave away during the Great Depression. That horrible, hard time in the history of our country. They gave away six percent. You know what the average is today? Two percent. Two percent. Think about that. Let me ask you this. Would sacrificial, would that word be an accurate word to describe us? Would it describe us individually? Would it describe us corporately? Could someone say truthfully about Red Hill Baptist Church, those people are sacrificial? You know, I talked about very quickly this morning, the heroes of the faith. We read through that list in Hebrews 11. And in the book of Philippians, we meet another hero of the faith. A hero of the faith is certainly not well known. In fact, some may have never heard of him before. His name was Epaphroditus. And the only place to read about him in Scripture is found here in the book of Philippians. Now, we're not told very much about this man. But what we are told is well worth considering. He lived a life of sacrifice. Now, remember, we're studying chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter 2 today. And in chapter 2, we're called to live a life of service, a life of unselfishness, a life of humility, and a life of unity. In fact, the very first four verses lay it down for us. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be what? Like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We're exhorted to do that. And then we're given four examples. The first example was the supreme example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have the example of Paul we studied uh, previously. We have the example of Timothy that we studied last week. And then we have fourthly here this morning, the example of Epaphroditus. Now, I want to read all the verses about Epaphroditus. Then we'll pray and we'll talk about who this gentleman was. Drop down in chapter two now and begin reading there at verse 25. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that you had heard that he had been sick. For indeed, he was sick nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. 
I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice and that I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. And then he's mentioned one more time. Go to chapter four and find verse 18. Chapter four, verse 18, Paul says, but I have all and abound. I am full Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, help us as we study your word today. I pray your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Open it up to us. Lord, work in our lives. Remove distractions and hindrances. Help us to focus upon your holy word. Work in each heart and life, I pray, in the Savior's name. Amen. Who is this man, Epaphroditus? That's a good question. And I'm told that his name literally means charming. And I want to look at what we can learn about uh, Epaphroditus here. Let's notice, first of all, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 25, notice the hats he wore. Uh, Like us, he had many titles and many hats that he wore. And basically, we can find five of them there in verse 25. Look at that verse again. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion and laborer and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. Now, remember, in chapter two at this point, Paul has been telling the Philippians that that I'm going to send Timothy to you. And not only am I going to send Timothy to you, but I trust I'm going to get to come soon as well. Um, but then he says in verse 25, I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. It appears that Timothy wouldn't come right away. Back up to verse 23. Here's what Paul says, talking about Timothy. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Remember, Paul is in prison here in Rome. At this time, he's probably under house arrest. He could not literally go at this time, but he trusts he would be able to go eventually. He says, I'm going to send Timothy, but not quite yet. I'm going to send him soon, as soon as I figure out how things are going with me. But I'm going to send to you Epaphroditus. And we'll talk about later why he was going to send him right away. But after Paul mentions Epaphroditus' name, he gives some wonderful descriptions of him. He says, basically, that Epaphroditus is my brother... He's my companion in labor and he's my fellow soldier. We might word it this way. Paul considered him a fellow believer, a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. In other words, Erdman said Paul makes him one with himself in sympathy, in service and in suffering. Let's consider all those titles for a moment. I'm going to send Epaphroditus, my brother, that is a fellow believer. Paul is obviously not talking about Epaphroditus being his literal physical brother. They were brothers in Christ. They're brothers in the family of God. They're brothers in Christ. Some have noticed uh, that I often call the men in this church brother so and so. And I sometimes call the, the ladies sister so and so. And I do that because in Christ, that is what we are. Like it or not. 
That's what we are in Christ. It reminds us that we're one in Christ. It reminds us that we're of the same family in Christ. And Epaphroditus was not just some fellow from Philippi, not just some impersonal person that came in to help Paul. He was his brother. He says he's my brother, a fellow believer. But then he says next in that verse, he's my companion in labor. That is, he's my fellow worker. He's my fellow worker. Now, think about this for a moment, beloved. You have the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul. And then you have a fellow from a church in Philippi. We would think like this. Here's the great Apostle Paul. And here's this fellow named Epaphroditus. Paul says, look, we are companions in labor. We don't know if Epaphroditus held any official office in the church in Philippi. Many commentators seem to believe that Epaphroditus was your average Joe. In fact, David Jeremiah says this about Epaphroditus. He was just a layman in the church at Philippi who held no office, wrote no books, gave no sermons, led no great enterprises for God. He was a messenger boy for the gospel, a servant for his Lord. And yet the Apostle Paul himself says, look, this man is my companion in laborer. And this is something we all need to catch, beloved. We are laborers together for Christ. Philippians 1.27 talks about striving together for the gospel. Now, sometimes believers will come into a church and they'll kind of sit back and take a spot in the pew and serve as kind of the spectators. And they watch other people do the work. They have these other people have the official positions. They might have the titles. So I kind of sit back and just I'm just this person here and I'm just going to watch other people work. But that is not how the church is to function. We're all to be ministers for Christ, whether we have an official title or capacity or authority or not. We're to strive together in the gospel. We're to strive together for the gospel. We're to serve together in the body of Christ. We all have our roles to fill. Now, listen, some roles are more visible and more public, while other roles or more hidden and behind the scenes. Listen carefully. Both are important. This morning we're here listening to a sermon. I'm preaching a sermon. And yet downstairs, hidden from our eyes, are those who are laboring for the Lord. What are they doing? They're keeping the nursery. They're teaching children's church. Various things. Last Sunday was my turn in the nursery to work. My heart wasn't in it. My feelings were hurt. A child from his mother did not want to part and cried a lot with his broken heart. I prayed that soon the hour would end that I could relax. Felt good to be free. I said once a month was too much for me. (laughs) That very next Sunday, as I sat in the pew, a very good sermon, but visitors were few. But down came a woman and her soul was saved. And she was the mother Of the crying babe. Then it dawned on me that I had been a part of one being saved, giving God her heart. From that day on, I would never dread working in the nursery while souls were being fed. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? That kind of lines it up. I almost feel like taking up a list of people working in the nursery this morning. We have some vacancies if you're interested. But listen, we're laborers together in the gospel, 
Everybody playing their part. Everybody having a role. And some of those are very visible, very public. And some of them are hidden behind the scenes. But listen, God sees. God knows. Do it for God's glory. And I think we should rejoice in all these various roles, not exalting one above another. Because I recognize today that we could not be doing what we're doing right now were it not for those who are willing to do what they're doing right now downstairs and in various places around the ministry here. Paul says, look, Epaphroditus, he's my fellow laborer. He's my brother. He's my companion in labor. But then he says what in that verse? He says he's my fellow soldier, my fellow soldier. Listen, the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battlefield. It's not a playground. It's a battlefield. We're involved in a spiritual battle. We're involved in a spiritual war. We forget that. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Paul and Epaphroditus were fellow soldiers. They were one in suffering. Paul is in prison here for the Lord at this time, probably under house arrest. Just being with Paul meant that Epaphroditus was obviously in harm's way. There was no security there. Yet he was a fellow soldier with Paul. Paul wrote to Timothy these words in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Thou, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who have chosen him to be a soldier. And if you know Jesus Christ as your savior, you're involved in a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle. Wake up to that fact. Put on the armor of God and do war in the Lord's strength. To Paul, Epaphroditus was not just a fellow from from Philippi, not just some average Joe. He says, listen, this man is my brother. This man's my companion in labor. This man is my fellow soldier. But notice there's a transition that comes in that verse now. Verse 25. The next word says, but. But now notice what it does now. But your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. So what is he doing? He's now turning and talking about Epaphroditus from the Philippian standpoint. He says, listen, he's your messenger. Now, let's let's back up for a moment. What did Epaphroditus do? Why is he in Rome with Paul? Why is he there? Why is he going through all this? We'll go over to chapter four again. Verse 18. We read it a while ago. It says this, but I have all and abound. I am full. Now watch this next part. Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And what has happened here is this. He brought, Epaphroditus brought the things from the believers in Philippi to Rome to Paul. These things, we don't know exactly what all it was. It no doubt included money. Probably some other gifts and necessities as well. And he was the one who brought those things from Philippi to Rome to Paul. You say, well, that's no big deal. I mean, basically, he was just an errand boy. He was he was a messenger. Wait a minute. This is long before American Airlines and Greyhound. Uh, Boyce says Philippi 
was about 800 miles from Rome. And that's a traveling distance of not less than six weeks by ancient means of travel. So you're talking about 800 miles in six weeks this trip would have taken to bring these things from Philippi to Rome. But it seems that it was more than just an errand. More than just a delivery like a, a UPS guy or a FedEx guy. You know, Here's your stuff, Paul. God bless you. I'm going back home. Look at the last part of verse 25 of chapter 2 again. It says, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. We give the fifth title of him as this, minister. It appears from the text that Epaphroditus was going to stay and assist Paul. He was going to minister to Paul on behalf of the Philippians. It's interesting to note the word here describes one who's engaged in priestly service. Remember the Old Testament, you had the Old Testament priest and they offered sacrifices. When you read the words of chapter four, verse 18, he says, I re- I'm full having received Epaphroditus, the things which were sent from you. What's this next part? An odor of a sweet smell. A sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. We see that imagery there of an Old Testament sacrifice and a priest offering that ministry to the Lord. And so it is. Here's a man, Epaphroditus. He's sent on an errand. He's sent as a messenger. He's sent as a minister to Paul from the Philippians. The hats he wore. So we know that much about this man now. Let's consider, secondly, this morning, the heaviness of. He endured. Go back to chapter two. If you're not already there, look at verse 26. For he longed after you all. We would short that to y'all, right? We longed after y'all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard. ye had heard that he had been sick for indeed he was sick nigh unto death. Now, wait a minute here. That tells us something about this man. That means the trip. And the time he spent in in Rome had not been easy. In fact, Epaphroditus got sick. Now, what he suffered from, we're not told, but we know it was serious. It says there that he was nigh unto death. Nigh unto death. That's repeated again. Uh, If you drop down to verse 30, it says he was nigh unto death. Kenneth Weiss says it literally means this. Listen, he and death. We're next door neighbors. He and death were next door neighbors. Maybe you've had some neighbors like that. I don't know. I understand a man got up in a prayer meeting and shared this request. He said, my wife's mother is at death's door. I want you to pray that God will pull her through. I don't think he meant that the way it came out. But sometimes you got to think before you give those requests, beloved. I love my mother-in-law, by the way. Put that on this here. Here's this message. In all seriousness, Epaphroditus almost died. But notice what it says in verse 26. For he longed after you all, was full of heaviness. Because why? Because he almost died? No, look what it says. Because that ye had heard that he had been sick. What's that mean, preacher? Here's what it means. He was there in sickness. He was there near death. He and death were next door neighbors. And what was he concerned about? Well, he got word that the folks back home had heard that he had been sick and he began to long after them all. Uh, He began to to become a little homesick for his flock there in Philippi. Uh, uh, And while we're thinking about this, I think it's appropriate to talk about sickness for a moment. Look at what it says in verse 27. For indeed, he was sick nigh unto death. 
But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, listen, we're reminded of several truths here. Sickness is all around us. Sickness has touched all of our families. What does God in his word say about sickness? Well, we learned several things, reminded of several things. First of all, believers are not immune to physical sickness. God has never promised any of us that when we trust in Christ, their savior will never be sick again. We're not immune to physical sickness, but notice this likewise. Physical illness is not always a result of sin. It's not always a result of sin. Some folks say, well, I know they must be some serious sin as sick as they are. Listen, beloved, here's a man, Epaphroditus, who loved the Lord. He was a brother. He was a believer. He was a companion in labor. He was a soldier for Christ. He was a messenger. He was a minister. He was your average Joe serving the Lord. And he was serving and doing God's work. Yet he grew sick. So it's not always a result of sin. We notice likewise, reminded, God does not always choose to heal believers from sickness. We don't always understand that. Why some folks grow sick and they die and other folks grow sick and they get well. God is sovereign. God has the choice. We learn likewise that God does not always heal instantaneously. It's sometimes a gradual process. Many times it's a long process as a person struggles with an illness. I noticed something else here. Here's Epaphroditus. Who is he with? He's with the Apostle Paul. And yet I do not read there where Paul says, you know what? I just touched him and healed him. I just laid hands on him and healed him. I just prayed for him and healed him. Why? Well, we believe at this time the sign gifts, the sign gifts had either ceased or were beginning to cease. Those sign gifts were being completed. And Paul says, look, I'm thankful God healed him because he had mercy upon me and mercy upon him, lest I have sorrow upon sorrow. Benson said it means uh, implies motion like wave after wave of sorrow coming. It would have greatly distressed the Apostle Paul had Epaphroditus passed away. Listen, notice what else we learn here. God in mercy healed Epaphroditus. God did the healing. I'm thankful today for doctors, for Nurses, for medical professionals, for medications, for for uh, surgeons and dentists and all those wonderful things. We praise God for them. But ultimately, at the end of the day, healing is from whom? From God himself. He can use all these means and all these wonderful people. But ultimately, when someone is healed, who receives the glory? God does. But I learn it's not always God's will for every believer to be healed or even healthy. God is sovereign. And God, this wisdom guides and directs. And so we have here that this man was healed. And Paul says, look, God had mercy on him and God had mercy on me. Lest that I shall have sorrow upon sorrow. Praise be to God. He healed Epaphroditus is what Paul is saying. We see the hats he wore, the heaviness he endured. Notice thirdly this morning, the honor he deserved, the honor he deserved. Look at verse 28. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, the Lord with all gladness and hold such a reputation because of the work of Christ. He was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Listen, the letter arrived, we believe, with Epaphroditus in Philippi. And one would have to wonder how the believers in Philippi would would feel when they saw Epaphroditus. In other words, things had not turned out the way they'd imagined. 
Epaphroditus was supposed to go and he was supposed to give these gifts to Paul. He was supposed to minister to Paul, but he got sick. He almost died. And now he's back here in Philippi. Paul says in verse 28, I sent him carefully, more carefully. It's the idea of speedily or eagerly. In other words, I got him out of here. When he got well, I sent him home. Why? Because I want you to rejoice. It says, when you see him again, rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. He says, look, when you see Epaphroditus, rejoice, be happy, be joyful. There's that theme again. He's in prison here, but he says, listen, rejoice when you see him. Be glad when you see him. You know, Paul did not want the believers in Philippi to look at Epaphroditus as a failure. Or as someone who did not fulfill his duty or one who fumbled the ball. Ken Hughes said that is what happened to my generation after the Vietnam War, when our men and women returned from an unpopular war that was fought a long ways from home. There were no outpourings of public appreciation and no parades because most people wanted to forget. America's corporate amnesia was a sad thing, and it took years for a proper monument to be erected for those who gave everything. He said a church like a culture that does not recognize the sacrifice of its own for the sake of the gospel makes a big mistake. When Epaphroditus got home, they were not just say, well, you know, welcome home. You know, you really fumbled. You really messed up. They said, hey, when he gets home, you rejoice. You receive him gladly and you hold such in reputation. In other words, he says, look, you honor him. You honor him. Now, listen, God always gets the glory. God gets the glory for it all. But it is right to honor those who honor him, to honor those who faithfully serve. He says in the end of verse 29, hold such in reputation. Why? Why should we honor this man? Look at verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, notice that for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life. Not regarding his life. Why? To supply your life of service toward me. Paul says, look. This man laid down his life. Literally, he almost died in his labor for Christ. Now, the end of that verse 30, don't misunderstand that when it says your lack of service toward me. Paul is not criticizing them here. What he's saying is, if Paphroditus came and did for me what you could not literally physically do. They had sent him on their behalf and he had labored there with Paul and for, for Paul. He says, look, this man almost died for the work of Christ. You know, as believers... Listen, we should be willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus. F.B. Meyer said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the more easily we could reach them. He said, I now I now find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other. And it's not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower. We need to catch that. As I thought about this, in all honesty, most of us. Listen now, in the heart I'm saying this, most of us are more willing to sacrifice more for our children than we are for Jesus. We're willing to sacrifice more for our children than we are for Jesus. Think about that. 
Now, don't get mad. I'm not saying don't sacrifice for your children. What I am saying is who deserves more of a sacrifice? Think about it. The king of glory, the one who gave his life for us, the one who suffered for us, the one who bled and died in our place, the one who purchased our pardon. The Lord Jesus Christ. We as believers should be willing to sacrifice everything. When's the last time you truthfully and honestly sacrificed something for Jesus? When is that? Those are not easy words to hear, I know. In his moving book, The Miracle on the River Kauai, Ernest Gordon tells the story or tells his story, rather, of a life as a Japanese prisoner of war. And he was among the men that built the infamous Burma Railway. He talks about the horrific conditions and what seemed to be no hope or purpose for life. He says a few Christians, however, formed Bible study groups, which began to bring about amazing transformations within the camps. POWs who had stolen and cheated from one another became men who cared for and gave their lives for their friends. He says those death camps became places of hope and life because God's word was at work. Gordon recounts during one work detail, a shovel went missing and the Japanese guards shouted, insisting someone had stolen it. Striding up and down before the men, he ranted and denounced them for their wickedness, working himself up into a paranoid fury. Screaming in broken English, he demanded the guilty one step forward to take his punishment and no one moved. The guards' rage reached new heights of violence. All die, all die, he shrieked to show that he meant what he said. He cocked his rifle, put it to his shoulder and looked down the gun sights, ready to fire at the first man at the end of the line. He says at that moment, one of the men stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention and said calmly, I did it. He writes, the guard unleashed all his whipped up hatred. He kicked the helpless prisoner and beat him with his fist. Seizing the rifle by the barrel, he lifted it high over his head and with a final uh, blow, brought it down on the prisoner's skull. That prisoner sank limply to the ground and did not move. He said the men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body, shouldered their tools and marched back to the camp. And when the tools were counted again at the guardhouse, no shovel was missing. Not even one. I read that and thought about John fifteen thirteen. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You see, that's what Jesus did, friend. He stepped forward. Totally innocent, never sinned, never an unkind word, never an evil or lustful thought. Perfect. And he said, I'll take their punishment. I'll take their sin. I'll die in their place. And here in Philippians 2, beloved, Jesus is our example. What kind of example, preacher? An example of humility. An example of unselfishness, an example of unity. And Epaphroditus, this hero of the faith, not well known, he lived that kind of life as well. An average Joe living for God's glory.
Dwight Pentecost said when God saves a man, God makes that man a partner in his work. God does not ask that man to be wildly influential, that he be spectacular or that he be recognized. God asks of that man that he be faithful, that he be faithful. Are you faithful? Are you faithful to Jesus? As we close this morning, let me ask you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? He died for you. He bled for you. He was buried for you. He arose again that you might have eternal life. Repent of your sin and trust Him today. If you say, preacher, I, I got that settled. Well, praise be to God. But let me ask you this. Listen now. Don't lose track. I'm getting settled. Going home. Listen. Are you living a life of unity? Are you living a life of humility? Are you living a life of unselfishness? Are you a servant like Epaphroditus? Are you willing? Listen, are you willing to truly lay it all on the line for the Lord Jesus? And one final thought. Listen, Paul says, hold such in reputation. In other words, hold these type of men and women up as an example in reputation. Do you do that? And do you teach your boys and girls, your children to do that? Do you say, listen, I know there are all kinds of examples out there, all kinds of folks who do all kinds of things. Some are good and some are bad. But look, here's what's important in life. You see that man, you see that woman. There's someone who's faithful to the Lord. They love God. They may not be the most well-known person. They may not be famous. They may not be rich. They may not even be influential in the world's eyes. But there's a man or woman who loves Jesus, who serves Jesus, and you ought to seek to be that type of man or woman, depending on your child's gender. Do you do do that? Do you hold in reputation these type of men? Father, we love you. We honor and adore you. Magnify your name in this place. Father, I've sought to be faithful in preaching your word today. I thank you for Epaphroditus. I thank you for his testimony. Lord, I thank you for what he did. The example he left. The legacy he leaves behind. Father, here he is. Just an average Joe. But Paul says, look, this is a man you hold reputation. A faithful man. A man who lays it all on the line for Jesus. Lord, I pray today as we close this service. If anybody here does not know Christ as their own Lord and Savior, they'll come today and meet Him. Father, I pray for believers. Lord, I pray that You've worked in lives as Your Word has gone forth. And I pray that they'll come and they'll be submissive to Your leading in their lives. And Father, I pray that You'd help us to have the right kind of look. In other words, to be looking for these type of examples. Men and women who love And faithfully serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.